So today we're going to get back into our series. We skipped it last week. Uh, thanks to Dad for preaching. He did a great job. Um, I got to listen in. So, um, so he did a wonderful job last week. And uh, so this week we're going to get back on our series called Summer Scriptures. And so what we're doing every summer, we try to take uh, either a book of the Bible, a real short one, obviously, or a passage of the Bible and just kind of break it down over a few weeks and just kind of go through it and see what it has to say to us. Um, Nothing topical about it. I mean, we'll pull topics out of what Jesus already said or what the Bible says. um, But the idea here is just to kind of understand Scripture. And, And part of the reason I like to do this is I want you to be able to read your Bible uh, in a way that you kind of get it. You know, sometimes I think whenever we read through a Bible reading plan, which is what I do, um, you kind of skip around through the Bible, different parts. Sometimes you hit certain chapters, but it, you really need to be able to read the Bible in a way that you can comprehend, that you can glean it, right? Uh, the Bible says that, that God's word is, is uh, seed for the sower and it's bread for the eater. I want you to be able to take the scriptures and not only consume it like bread, but then also have seed to be able to sow into other people's lives. And so, so that's why we're doing this. So last week we talked about how when we started in Matthew chapter 5, um, it's the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things we said was that, that the whole kind of gist of the Sermon on the Mount is the idea that our character, who we are, our identity in Christ is more important than what we do, right? And we said, we said if, if the heart is right, then the actions will follow that. And so it's important to see that. Luke chapter 6, Jesus says this in verse 45. We read this last week. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. An evil produ- person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. So today, with that as being um, last week kind of the setup, and today understanding that concept, that, that good people will do good things out of the treasury of their heart, bad people or evil people will do evil things out of the treasury of their heart. So what's in your heart will determine what comes out. Very simple concept. It's something Jesus wants to explain to us. And so let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Last week we ended at verse 16. This week we'll pick up at verse 17. So in verse 17, here's what Jesus says. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So if you're underlining today, and and let me go ahead and say, there's going to be certain parts of this message I'm going to have to kind of go through quickly. We'll skip over um, a little bit of some of this stuff uh, only for time constraints today because there is a lot in this passage. But, but I want to show you the highlights. So underline this, highlight it in your, in your phone or, or iPad, whatever you have, a real Bible. Uh, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The point of Jesus coming is to fulfill the law. He did not come to end the law. Sometimes we get uh, misconstrued today. Uh, There's lots of churches out there, a lot of people out there that completely abandon the Old Testament because they say, oh, the law is abolished. The law is gone with Christ. And that's not true. As a matter of fact, Jesus doesn't come to get rid of the law. He comes to fulfill the law. And and so we need to understand that. That's going to make a lot of sense later on today. He goes on to say, for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. In other words, the law has a purpose that needs to be accomplished, and that's what Christ came to do. It says in verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We'll come back to verse 20 later on. But, but let's, let's hone in on a couple of things he says. Number one, he says he came to, uh, to fulfill the law. I want to talk about that. Number two, he says whoever relaxes the law is in trouble. So, so a couple of things. What did he come to fulfill? Jeremiah 31, 33. Jeremiah 31, 33. This is a prophet. And this is what Jesus came to do. We're going to look at what Jeremiah says here, that, that God's speaking through Jeremiah. He says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Look at this. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. In other words, Jeremiah says there's not going to be an abolishment of the law. There's not going to be an ending of the law. There's going to be a, um, a shift in how the law is received, that the law is not going to be received anymore necessarily on, on tablets of stone, but on, written on our hearts. So Jeremiah says there's coming a time when the law is going to be inside of you, not just something on the outside. Ezekiel follows Jeremiah up with this thought in Ezekiel eleven nineteen and 20. He says, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. So what did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to fulfill the law. How? Which part? Right? Because he says the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill this, that I'm going to take the heart of stone out. Right? What were the law? What was the law originally written on? It was written on stone. I'm going to take that out. And what am I going to do instead? Instead, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, a soft, pliable heart, and I'm going to write my law on your heart. Why am I going to do that? He says, I'm going to do that so that you can obey it, so that you can actually live it out. And so Jesus came to say, hey, look, it's not necessarily about what's written in hard stone. It's about what I'm putting in your heart. That if you don't have your heart right, which we talked about last week, then your actions will not follow, right? And so it's important to understand that. Um, and so to give us some perspective, Jesus says anybody that relaxes the law, anybody that relaxes the law, what is that? What is he talking about? Well, the religious leaders in those days did a couple of things. You've heard the term sometimes the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law, right? Everybody's heard that term. It's not necessarily a biblical term. Um, there's a, there's an idea of spirit of the law and letter of the law. Letter of the law means that I'm following every single word that the, that, that is written down without understanding why it's written down. That's the spirit of the law. Okay? Letter of the law versus spirit of the law. And, and, and so one of the things that happened back in those days is what they would do is they would, they would either constrict the law into, into one word of the letter so that they could sin even more. It doesn't make sense to do that, but it, it, it is. You think it's all about, I've got to follow the law, I've got to follow the rules in order to be righteous, in order to be godly. But instead, they were giving themselves leeway to do even worse things by constricting the law. For example, the law said, uh, you should not murder. So what did the religious leaders of the day do? They begin to constrict the law down to just the word murder. So therefore, if I want to take a baseball bat and hit you in the head, as long as I don't kill you, it's okay. Right? Because why? Because I didn't murder you. I beat you to within an inch of your life, but at least I didn't murder you. Right? Right? I, I took something from your garage and kept it at my house as though it was my own. I didn't steal it. I borrowed it. 
right? I've got two brother-in-laws in the room, and they borrow stuff from each other all the time, right? And so it's, a, it's this understanding that these guys, what they would do is they would constrict the law down to one word, and so therefore they're not actually cheating. They're not, they're not sinning according to their terms. H- have you ever heard the term, I didn't have an affair, I just had an emotional connection with a person of the opposite sex? No, you had an affair, you know? You're, what you're doing is you're saying, because we didn't um, have any level of intimacy, because it was just emotional, it's not a real affair, it's not adultery. Wrong. That's not what you're doing, is you're constricting it. Here's the other thing that they would do, is they would expand it beyond intent in order to be able to sin. So, so the Bible said that, uh, it talks about divorce, and, and the Bible says in the Old Testament that Moses would give people permission to, to divorce only if there was, uh, there was a, a sexual sin that happened, right? That was the only intent, was for sexual sin. But what they did is they took the actual word that Moses said, and he talked about the word uncleanness, and they began to expand just that one word. Instead of going to the intent of the word, they expanded the one word to mean whatever they wanted it to mean so that they could get away with it. So it turned out that that not only could they divorce their spouse for sexual uh, misconduct, but they could also divorce their spouse if she burnt their breakfast. Now that sounds silly. Maggie, Maggie can cook. I'm sure she can. Whenever, whenever Perry and I first got married, we had, um, <clears throat> we had some grounds for divorce, according to these people. When Perry and I first got married, I couldn't cook necessarily, and Perry couldn't cook necessarily because both of our parents cooked very well. And so, um, so I, remember, I remember one Saturday, Perry got up and she said, I'm going to make you waffles and um, she wanted to make me waffles, and so, so she went to make me waffles, and she's reading the directions, and she's following the directions, and she puts the, the batter in the waffle iron, and she closes the waffle iron, and whenever she does, I look over, and I'm like, babe, I think something's wrong. She said, what do you mean? I said, there's oil coming out of the waffle iron onto the counter, down the, the cabinets, all over the floor. There's oil everywhere. What is happening right now? And she said, I don't know. I followed the directions just like my mama wrote. And, and, and I, this is what the, the directions say. And, and so she said, I'm going to call my mom and see what happened. And so she calls her mom and, and she says, look, I'm, I'm reading the directions. It says three or four cups of oil. And her mom said, no, that's three fourths of a cup of oil. Perry put three or four cups of oil in there. So oil is just going everywhere. Grounds for divorce, you know. That's it. I'm done with you. You can't cook waffles. I don't need you in my life. And so they, they begin to expand the single individual words in, into these things so that they could get around whatever sin they wanted to get around. You see what they're, what they're doing here? Is they begin to take the letter of the law, and, and because of the letter of the law, they can manipulate it however they wanted to manipulate it. It had nothing to do with their heart, had nothing to do with intent, it had nothing to do with relationship. Their only relationship was with the law itself, not with the God that wrote the law. There's a, there's a story that came out of New York many years ago, and, um, and it was in a, in a Jewish uh, uh, neighborhood, and, and in this neighborhood there was an apartment fire that started and the, the problem was the apartment fire started on Sabbath. And so the, the owner of the apartment uh, called his rabbi, who was orthodox, or, or talked to the rabbi. He didn't call him, went to the rabbi and, and said, hey, can we call the fire department 
to put out the fire in the apartment um, because, because in, in those days they considered uh, using the phone to get the fire department or get someone to come do something as work on the Sabbath. And the Orthodox uh, rabbi took 30 minutes to determine that, yes, you can call the fire department. By the time he determined that, yes, you can call the fire department, three apartments burned down. The, the idea is this. They, they, they want to follow the letter of the law. In those days, they wanted to follow the letter of the law without understanding the intent or heart behind it. And what Jesus is about to bring us to is he's about to show us there's a heart behind every law. There's a heart behind every commandment. There's an intent behind every commandment. And I need you to stop worrying so much about the letter and start worrying about the spirit behind the letter. Because if you can get the spirit right, then the letter stuff will be easy. So here's what he says. He, he goes into, um, he starts going into a lot of the laws. And, and so the first one he talks about is, is murder. And, and so Matthew uh, 5, 21 through 26. And, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the portion and then I'll talk about some of the things in that portion. Uh, verse 21. You've heard it said, uh, said of those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say, and you're going to see this a lot with Jesus in this passage. He's going to say, you've heard it said and, and when he says you've heard it said, sometimes he's talking about uh, the actual law, but sometimes he's talking about the traditions of men. So, so there are times when the men, uh, when, when the religious leaders would add to the law. And so you'll see that later on in one of the ones one that we get to. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say, and that's the next thing, you're going to hear Jesus say, but I say a lot. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So, so Jesus says it's not a matter of murder, it's a matter of anger. And he says whoever's angry will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the, uh, to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to, with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. A couple of things I want to point out. Number one, anger here does not just mean I'm mad, right? If that's the case, then we've all murdered somebody today on the way to church, right? We all get angry. Isn't it funny how the, the angriest uh, we get sometimes all week long is on the drive from our house to the church? That's why Perry and I drive separate, because that way we never get angry with each other, right? And so there's this idea of anger. It's not just mad. This is an uncontrollable, um, unresolvable kind of anger. This is one of those kinds of anger that, that, that no matter what you do, you're constantly thinking about it and you're replaying it. Have you ever been this kind of angry? You're constantly replaying it in your mind what that person did to me. You're over and over again thinking about ways that you can get back at that person. You're, 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 you're meditating on the anger. You're feeding on the anger about that person. Every time you see that person, your heart rate begins to go up. Every time you think about that person or even think about if I'm going to be near them, possibly. Like there's times when you, you would say, I don't want to go out tonight because I don't want to run into this person. I'm so angry. Jesus says, whenever you're harboring that kind of anger in your life, you may as well have murdered. Same difference. Why? 
Because the idea of me saying you should not murder, when, when God writes you shall not murder, the idea is it's, it's, it's a heart issue behind that. That, that. that murder doesn't just happen willy-nilly. Murder happens because there's a heart problem. There's a heart problem that leads to murder. Perry and I watch, I say this every week, I think, we watch Dateline all the time. That's how we go to bed sometimes. And sometimes I have to make sure that she's going to bed first, right? I don't need her to see how the wife gets away with it. And so, um, so I have nightmares, of course, every night. But the idea is every time they talk about someone got murdered and they say, I don't know, you know how this happened. There's always a heart issue. There's always a, something else going on behind the scenes in that person's life. That leads to that. And so Jesus says that, that, that it starts with anger. But, but here's the part that I want to draw out for us today. It is the idea of reconciliation. Because Jesus says this about anger. He says, reconciliation is greater than your acts of worship. I thought that was interesting. That, that God cares more about you being reconciled. Listen, this is a relationship thing. He cares more about your relationships with people than he does about your sacrifice at the altar. So he's saying before you come, now we don't sacrifice animals anymore, but he's saying before you show up at church in your Sunday clothes and you come down and and we start singing worship songs and you begin to lift up your hands and you begin to clap and you begin to sing, but you realize that you got something going on in a relationship with somebody else. He says, I would rather you get that right than show up at church and look holy. As long as you're harboring anger and bitterness in your heart, Your worship is fairly shallow to me. So it's important that we reconcile more than we show up with our worship. The next thing he talks about in Matthew chapter 5 is verses 27 through 30. He's going to lead us through lust and adultery. And he says this, you've heard it said, uh, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown to hell. And if your right, eye, um, right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. What he's saying here is this. Sometimes we think, in, in today's society especially, I, I've, I've heard this said, well, I'm not committing adultery, Right? I'm not sleeping with another woman, but looking is okay. I, I, I can't believe I just, it just hit me. I just remembered this. Um, I, I remember a guy telling me one time, uh, an adult man, an adult man, and I was a teenage boy, and I remember the adult man telling me that uh, we were driving by somebody, we were, we were driving down the road, and it was me and my friend and this guy, he was my friend's dad, and, and, and as we were driving down the road, this, this woman was jogging by on the side of the road, and I remember the, the dad looking and staring this woman down and talking about how good looking she was. And, and I remember it hitting me funny as a young teenager because I thought, you're married. Like, why would you say that? I don't hear my dad say that. So why would you say that? You know what I mean? Like, you know how young teenagers are. We, we kind of process that stuff. And, and I remember him saying, boys, it's okay to look at them as long as you don't do anything with them. And I just thought, that can't be right. And whenever I read this passage, Jesus says, listen... It's not okay to look at them like that. If you look at someone with an intent in your heart, then you've already committed adultery with them in your life, in your heart. It doesn't matter what you do in the physical. 
It matters what you do in here. So that, that puts to rest the idea of, oh, well, you know, men will be men and they're going to look at stuff. No, no, no. No, it, Jesus says that's not true because he was a man and he didn't do it. So therefore, as men, we can't do it, right? And women, same way. It's, it's this idea that whatever's in our heart. And, and here's the part I want to draw out today because I feel like that part's fairly understandable. But the part I want to draw out is the idea of plucking out your eye or cutting off your hand. Right? I don't see a lot of one-eyed guys in here today. Because that's not really how it works. In this case, Jesus wasn't being literal. He was being figurative in, in what he's talking about. And, and so uh, there was a... There was a man one time, there was a, there was a movement back many, many years ago where people would legitimately do this and they realized that it didn't really help them with their sin problem. There was a priest uh, or a monk one time that had a problem with lust and, and I don't mean to be crude or graphic, so I'll try to use terms that aren't that way, but he castrated himself thinking that in that manner he would not struggle with lust anymore. You know what he found out? He still struggled with lust. Why? Because it was a heart problem, not a body problem. And, and as crazy as that is, today we, we kind of take that, that view in a, in a different sense. And we say, well, there's just nothing I can do. And I'm certainly not going to pluck out my eyes or, you know, cut off body parts. Um, but here's what Jesus meant. Jesus meant do whatever it takes for you to be free from temptation. Do whatever it takes. So what does that mean for me, Gabriel? That may mean that, that you need to change jobs if you can't stop talking to that person at your job. Maybe it means you need to go to a different cubicle. Maybe it means that, that you need to go to a different class. Uh, maybe it means that you need to work out at a different place or go to a different grocery store. Maybe it means that you need to turn off the internet or set up safeguards. I, I heard a preacher the other day. He said, I don't need safeguards. And if you need safeguards, something's wrong with you. And I thought, you're crazy. Like, you are nuts. Listen, I want to be safe, man. I want to protect what God has put inside of me. I want to protect this spirit. I want to protect this heart. I want to protect my marriage. I want to protect my kids. And so, so there's this level of safeguards that we need to put up in our life. I read a story about a guy that, that his addiction was to TV. It had nothing to do with lust, but his addiction was to TV. He watched TV all the time. And so what he did is he took the TV off the wall. He unplugged it and he stuck the TV in the closet. And he determined if he wanted to watch TV bad enough, he would get the TV out. He would hang it and he would plug it in and watch it. He noticed that he didn't want to watch TV that bad. He was also a little bit lazy, right? And so, um, and so he didn't watch TV as much. And, and it got me to thinking about stuff like this, that sometimes if we find ourselves with an addiction, if we find ourselves with a problem, that we need to do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Why? Because it's a heart issue. I want my heart to be right. So whatever it takes for me is what I'm going to do to find accountability. The next one he talks about, we won't spend time on this one, is divorce. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3, 31 and 32. Um, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we've already talked about that earlier. And I preached a whole message just on this passage. Um, so we can go back and watch that one or, or check that one out later. But the idea, again, it's Jesus bringing it back to you've twisted the original intent of the commandment. Stop twisting it. Get back to the heart of the commandment. Divorce was originally written that way to protect the woman's rights. People don't think that women had rights in the Bible, but they absolutely did. 
And the way it was written originally was to protect her rights. And then all they did was twist it to give her even less rights. The next one, and we'll, we'll go through this one quickly as well, because I want to get to verses 38. But 33 through 37 says, Again, you've heard it said of those, uh, to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform uh, to the Lord which you have sworn. Verse 34, But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is a, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let, you, uh, let what you say, or, or grow, um, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. In other words, he, he's honing in on this idea that, that people um, keep having to swear by stuff to make people believe them. He says, if you'll just live a life of honesty and truth, then you're not going to have to swear by anything to get someone to believe you. Because they begin to swear by God and swear by the temple and swear by the gold and swear by this and swear by that. And he says, stop going around doing that. Learn how to be an honest, truthful person, and then people will believe you right from the beginning. He says, whatever you say, do it. If you say yes, then it's yes. If you say no, then it should be no. But you shouldn't have to build everything up because you're a dishonest person and nobody believes you anyway. All you got to do is look at a parent of a teenager. All right? Parents of teenagers don't believe their kids. Ever. I know because I am a parent of a teenager. And I don't believe anything my kids say. Not one thing, Gabriel. The idea, though, if you can learn to be honest, and, and that's one of the things we teach our kids all the time, just be honest the first time. Be honest the first time. If you mess up, be honest, right? If you're doing something, just be honest about what you're doing. Even if what you're doing is not right, be honest about it. At least we'll know that you're always honest. It's important. Let's get to the next one, because this is the part that I want to I get into, and then we're going to be um, shutting it down pretty quickly. The next one has to do with retaliation. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42 says this. You've heard, it, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give, the one, give to the one who begs from you and do not refute the one who would borrow from you. So this one brings a lot of confusion because people say, do I always have to turn my cheek like... Should Chris Rock had turned his other cheek and let Will Smith slap him on the other side too, right? I don't know. We're about to find out. So what does it mean? What does it mean? First of all, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Jesus leads with that as a header. The header means this. There was a legal restriction on punishment in the Old Testament. The, the term eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth was not a commandment that if someone hit you in the eye that you hit them back in the eye. It was a commandment for judges that whenever they're judging to be able to judge fairly. In other words, if someone hit Brandon in the eye, if G2 hits Brandon in the eye, I can't chop G2's arm off because of it, right? No. What does G2 deserve? He deserves something of, of equal value in punishment. So then we hit him in the eye. <laughs> Pop that eye. In other words, it was a legal thing to just keep people from over-punishing someone. But what they did, what the religious leaders did, is they began to twist it and turn it into a relationship thing. What was meant for the courts became a part of relationship with people. And they began to tell people it's okay for you to punish other people, retaliate against other people in the same manner that they do with you. In other words, what's happening is he's, they begin to teach people to live by their feelings 
not by the Spirit of God inside of them. So whenever he says this about slap, and so there's three things he says, slap, tunic, and walk a mile. Just quickly, let's hit those. The original term for slap there has nothing to do with someone slapping you in the face. It is a slap, but it's a, it was a backhanded slap, and what that meant was it was an insult. It's an insult. I'm insulting you. You ever seen those, the, the old TV shows, the old movies, where the guy, like, they come up and they pull off their glove, right? And they always pull it off one finger at a time, and it's very dramatic. And they finally get the glove off, and they slap each other in the face with the glove. And it's like, I insult you, sir. You know, uh, we will duel now. And so um, that's the basic, same basic thing. It's, it's an insult. I smack you in the face, and you are now insulted. And now you are embarrassed because you have been smacked in the face by me. And so what Jesus says here is he says, listen, it's an insult. It's an insult. Get over it. He says, if someone insults you like that, turn your other cheek. Insult this one too. Let's see what you got. You know, like, like Jesus' mindset here is, is not about a fight. Like this isn't someone trying to fight you at all. This isn't about defending yourself in a, in a battle. Those things are okay. Those things are fine. There's a place in the Bible where Jesus says, hey, man, you, mean, you might need to pick up a sword because there's coming a day when things are going to get really violent and you might have to defend yourself. So, so you need to understand something. This is not about fighting. This is about insults. Jesus withstood every insult thrown his way. As a matter of fact, when people insulted Jesus, he took it like a man because he didn't care about what they thought. When people insult you, most of the time it's a trap. And they bait you in, and they say something about you, and the next thing you know, your feelings are up, and you begin to attack out of feelings. You begin to live out of emotion and feeling, not out of the Spirit of God living inside of you, not out of the truth of God's Word. You can't allow these insults to trap you like that. And I know there's some people in the room, some people listening online, um, that every time you get insulted, every time something hurts your feelings, you go off about it. We see it all over Facebook. You don't hide it very well, right? We see it. We get it. We get it. You're, you know, ex whoever, your former whatever, the boss at this place. I know they did you wrong. They hurt your feelings. You don't have to get on there and blast everybody associated with it. But we do that. It's not biblical. It's not godly. It's not what Jesus tells us to do. The tunic had to do with uh, a court case. In, in other words, there, there was this law that said that you could take someone's, um, you could take someone's tunic, their inner garment, but you could not take their outer garment, their cloak, because the cloak was meant to keep you warm. And so the Bible says, don't take their cloak. I know it sounds silly, but basically it would be like if you sued someone and you sued them for everything they have and you leave them penniless, penniless uh, broke, uh, homeless, and, and with nothing. And what Jesus is saying here is the law was set up to not do that. But in the conversation, so I never really understood this one very much until I started studying it. But basically what Jesus is talking about here is he's saying this. He's saying, listen, if someone does some kind of injustice to you, they're not fair to you um, in, in a situation. Don't always be that guy that threatens to sue everybody. Don't always be that woman that threatens to sue everybody. I think today the, the term uh, my kids throw around a lot is the Karen, right? You've heard of that. It's probably an insulting term nowadays. I've, I've probably just overstepped my bounds, and I'll get in trouble for saying that. But, but the idea is the person that's always saying, I'm calling the manager. I'm calling your boss. I'm, I'm, I'm calling the police. I'm calling the whoever. And, and you've got that person that is constantly over the top. What's happened to that person? They live so much in their feelings and their emotions that it's always about, let's go to another level with every little thing that you feel like is a, is a, a slight towards you or not fair. 
The third one was this, a walk a mile. And, and so back in those days, the Romans could actually force a Jew to carry their pack for them for up to a mile, but not beyond. For up to a mile and not beyond. And, and what Jesus says is um, the, the Jews felt like that was a, a super big insult. They hated the fact that that was a rule. They hated the fact that they had to live underneath the boot of the Romans. But Jesus says, listen, if someone does that to you, even if you don't think it's fair, even if you don't think it's right, even if you don't like the rule, he says, don't just walk a mile. Tell them you'll walk two miles. There's an old term called kill them with kindness. There's a place in the Bible, and we don't really want to kill people, that goes back against the, the murder thing, you know. Um, but there's a place in the, in the New Testament where, where the Bible says that, that whenever you're kind to someone that's mean to you, it's like heaping coals, uh, burning coals into their lap, right? In, in other words, it, it actually hurts them when you're kind to them, even though they're being mean to you. And what Jesus is saying here is he's not saying you can't retaliate against somebody. He's not saying you can't protect your family and protect yourself. He says, but when people are trying to manipulate you, recognize it. Don't live in your feelings and go the extra mile. Go the extra mile. Prove to them what kind of Christian you are. Show them what's in your heart. That in your heart, you're not trying to hurt them. Now listen, you may say, yeah, but pastor, I'm going to get run over. People are going to do me wrong. We already said last two weeks ago that meekness means strength or power under control. All Jesus is doing is giving you three examples of how to be meek. He said be meek. He said the meek will be blessed. And now he gives you three examples of what it means to be meek. When they insult you, when they are unfair to you, or whenever they try to manipulate you. He says, learn how to be meek. And here's the action steps to that. we got two more. Matthew uh, 5, 43 through 48. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Right off the bat, the Bible doesn't say that. Right off the bat, let me tell you, the Bible does not say that. The Old Testament verse that Jesus is quoting is out of Deuteronomy. And it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus quotes later on when someone asks him what the greatest commandments are. It doesn't say hate your enemy, but Jesus says you've heard it said. Why? Because what happened was, is the religious leaders of, the, of that time added on to the law that God already gave. They said, not only should you love your neighbor, but you should hate your enemy. And what that did is that gave them an out to hate people that weren't just like them. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. In other words, he says, you'll find your true identity as a son of the Father, as a son of God. How? By, by loving those who persecute you. He says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your fathers in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? That's easy. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing uh, than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The idea here is, is that Jesus is saying, listen, we got to love our neighbor, but you need to determine who your neighbor is. Later on, they'll ask him about that. He goes into a whole message called the Good Samaritan about who your neighbor is. But basically what these people have done is they've said, listen, anybody that's not like me, all the people that are uncircumcised, they're not like the Jews. So therefore, we can hate them. And we love our Jewish brothers and sisters, but we hate anyone outside. This same philosophy has trickled down into Islam. So Islam, uh, you know, the, the fundamentalist Islam, the Orthodox Islam, one of the things that you're going to notice about them is they're going to hate the West. They're going to hate the Jew. They're going to hate the Christian, right? They love each other. Not really, because they end up in a lot of fights there too. But, but they hate others. 
This is the thing that Jesus absolutely says is not right. He says this isn't biblical. Jesus says in another passage, he says you should pray for your enemies, bless your enemies, and do good to your enemies. So what does that mean for us? I think what that means is, who is my enemy and who is my neighbor? Uh, I think what we've done in nowadays terms is we begin to divide neighbor and, and enemy there. We begin to divide that maybe along political lines. Listen, I, I'm all for if, if I've, I've always said this. I, I know there are problems with the Republican Party. I know there are problems with the Democratic Party. I get that. I just got back from Washington, D.C. Um, I just looked through a lot of the history uh, of how all that stuff evolved. Did you know that there was a point in time when the Republicans and the Democrats were the same thing? It was called the Republican-Democratic Party. Right? It's crazy. Right? And then they, just, they divided, and the Republicans were the way the Democrats are now, and the Democrats were the way the Republicans are now, and then they switched. It's crazy. It's crazy. Listen, here's what we do, though, nowadays, is we begin to look at somebody because of how they vote without understanding the heart behind their vote, and because of the way they vote, we begin to hate them. I don't hate them, Pastor. I don't hate them. I love everybody. I love my neighbors. I love everybody, no matter what they're, what they're voting and what their politics are. That's a lie, man. That's a lie. All I got to do is listen to you talk for about five minutes when it comes to politics. If I just say one thing about Joe Biden or Donald Trump, and I just listen to what you got to say, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, you hate people. And you got to get that right. You got to get that right. There are very few amens on that one. I think our online viewership just went down. But the idea is, what, what harm does it do for me to pray for someone? What harm does it do for me to bless someone? Listen, if, if you're... If you're one way in a belief system. Look, we, we do the same thing with religions. We do the same thing with races. Um, if you're one way, why would I want to be stereotypical, right? Stereotypical white guy, stereotypical Republican, stereotypical Democrat, stereotypical black guy, stereotypical whatever. Why would I want to be that? Why can't I just be a Christian and love people and bless people yeah, but they don't believe the same way I believe. And they, and they vote for babies to be killed. And they vote for racism. And No, 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 no. Ain't nobody voting for babies to be killed. Nobody's voting for racism. Listen, at the end of the day, we need to be Christians. We need to love people, even if they're different from us. This is probably the hardest one for us to live out. But it's the most important one. Let's end with this. Righteousness. So we're done with chapter 5. We're moving into chapter 6. And here's what Jesus says. He kind of sums it all up. And then next week we go into prayer. He, he deviates from all of this heart stuff and all of this rules and laws. And he, he goes into prayer. It'll be a much better um, feel-good message for us next week. So just come back next week. But, but today he's going to end with a little more pain. All right? So Jesus doesn't get away from our pain. He says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The point here is not about giving. That's not the point. The point here is about practicing righteousness. He says the heart behind your right living, the heart behind your actions should not be so that other people will praise you. 
As a matter of fact, if we, if we skip back up to Matthew 5, 20, he says, um, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, righteousness is necessary. Sometimes we think that, oh, well, the Bible says that, uh, that, that I'm saved by faith and not by works. I'm saved by grace and not by works. And so therefore, my right living, my right actions don't mean anything. It doesn't matter what I do. It, it only matters about God's grace. Wrong. That's not biblical at all. Jesus says righteousness matters. He says you've got to be more righteous than the most righteous people of the time. And I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, that's impossible. How can I be more righteous than the Pharisees? They did everything right. The Bible says that they tithed even on the herbs of their garden. Think about that for a minute. Our church is a very giving church. You guys are incredible at tithing. We give 10%. My wife and I give 10%. We teach our kids to give 10%. But consider the idea that they tithe even on the mint from their garden. That would mean if you had a garden and you grew a carrot and you pulled that carrot out and you would measure that carrot and you would divide it into 10 pieces and you would take one tenth of that and put it in the drop box in the back, I'd be mad at you. But that's how, that's how righteous these guys were. That's how much they followed the letter of the law. And Jesus says, if you can't be more righteous than that, you're not going to make it into heaven. And I'm like, God, that's impossible. Jesus, why would you say that? But then he backs it up at the end of the passage, at the end of the section, by saying that their righteousness is only practiced with a bad heart. So he's not saying that you've got to do more than them. He's saying your righteousness has to be better than theirs. It's got to come from a better place than theirs. Theirs comes from a place of pride. I want people to look at me and see what I'm doing. And and Jesus says, your righteousness has to come from a place of love. So let's talk about righteousness for a second. I'm going to give you three thoughts on righteousness, a couple of verses, and I promise I'll dismiss. I know we got to go. Number one, righteousness doesn't save you. Jesus does by his grace and his mercy. I want to lay that as a foundation. I don't want anybody to get this thing twisted. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. In other words, my salvation is not based on how good or bad I am, right? It's not based on my works. We'll talk later in the series about it being based on our heart. We've already set the groundwork for that. But Paul says it's so that no one can boast, so that you can't brag about how you saved yourself. But that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Their righteousness, they're walking around saying, surely I'm going to make it to heaven. Why? Because I even tithe on the mint out of my garden. Look how good I am. Look how perfect I am. Look how much I follow the rules. You say, well, Gabriel, we don't do that. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And we judge other people that don't live the same way we do. Titus 3, 5 says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Paul's writing that too. I think the reason Paul writes that is Paul was a Pharisee. Paul lived that legalistic lifestyle. He lived that lifestyle that was only based on rules and not, not relationship. That's the only way he understood religion. And so Paul's right and he's saying, guys, you got to get it straight. Righteousness is necessary, but righteousness isn't alone what saves you. There's grace 
from God for us. Number two, righteousness should flow from a heart of love for Christ, not a place of obligation, pride, or religion. Your right living should flow from a heart of love for Christ. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And number three, righteousness should always glorify God, not you or me. Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others. So Jesus is advocating that we have good works. He's advocating not only do we have good works, but our good works should be done in public. Yeah, but he just said that you should give in private. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. No, no, no. Remember, he's talking about the heart. We, we get caught up in the words and the letter, and Jesus is constantly taking us back to the heart. So he says this, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He just got done saying, your good works shouldn't glorify you. They should glorify Him. Why don't you stand up with me today? It's unfair to say what I'm about to say. It's not God. It's 100% me. But I know a lot of your stories. The benefit and the downside, the benefit for me, the downside for you of being in a small church is that I know a lot of your background. And I know there's a lot of us that have walked into this place from a place of legalism. We walked into this, those doors from a place where, where people followed the letter of the law and you were condemned if you didn't follow every single letter. Even if it was not the law, it was traditions of men. i never forget one time as a as a, a, a young pastor on a staff at a church one time, uh, I, I went, there was a bunch of um, young people going to play cards. They were going to go play spades and spoons. And, and I went, I'm playing spades and spoons. I love spades, man. I, I love to play spades. And I like spoons too. It gets very violent, but I like to play spoons. And, and so um, I remember playing. And I remember the next day going to, going to work and, and this uh, older pastor that was on staff, he was kind of the... Um, pastoral care kind of guy, he came in the room and he said, brother, I heard you played cards last night. And I was like, yeah, man, it was awesome. You should have been there. Like, it was so much fun. We we're playing spoons and this guy got a black eye. It was amazing. And, and, and like we were talking and, I, and he was like, we shouldn't be playing cards. And I was like, oh no, this guy thinks playing cards is wrong. He probably thinks going to the movies is wrong. I'm about to disappoint this guy really bad. What we've done in our life is we've come out of churches that set up all these rules and regulations. And rules and regulations aren't bad. There's nothing wrong with rules. What's wrong is whenever you follow the rules and you're not following Christ. What's wrong is whenever you blindly follow a set of legalism, a set of laws, without understanding the heart behind those laws. And so what I'm advocating to you today is there may be some of you that have come out of a place of legalism. There may be some of us that find ourselves even today in a place of legalism. Maybe we feel guilty because of some things. There's some people, honestly, people will come to church here and they'll see that I don't wear a tie and I don't ever wear dress pants hardly and I wear tennis shoes on stage. And, and, And mentally in their heart, they begin to struggle with the fact that he's not dressed up. And the first Sunday they come without a dress on and and a woman comes in blue jeans, she immediately feels guilt. Some of you are thinking, I could never, that's not me. Yeah, but there are people that are like that. Why? Because we get trapped in this legalism, things that don't matter. 
Sometimes we get stuck in some of these things that Jesus talked about. We get ourselves into a legalistic trap of, I didn't murder them. Yeah, but did you cuss them out? I mean, because if you're cussing them out, maybe you should have murdered them. Because in your heart, yeah, but I didn't cheat on my wife. Yeah, but were you looking at porn? Because if you were looking at it, if you were thinking about it, if you were dwelling on it, it's the same thing. And we get stuck in this legalistic mindset. We get stuck in this mindset where I just want to follow the letter of the law and Jesus is calling us back to a place of the heart. He says, I want to take out your heart of stone. I want to take out that legalistic heart and I want to give you a heart of flesh. I want to take out that, that legalistic heart and I want to put a heart that's soft and pliable that I can lead and guide. The Bible says he, he wants his spirit to lead you and guide you. So today we're going to just pray and then I'm going to dismiss you. I know we got kids that have to go to camp and we got all kinds of stuff happening. But I want us to pray right now. And, and as we pray, if I could get a couple of people... Sarah, Gary, could y'all come down? Mom and dad, y'all can come down. And and we're just going to, if you need prayer today, I'm going to pray over you, but if you need prayer today, I want you to come down and let some people pray with you this morning. Paul and Vicki, you guys over here, y'all can come down over this side. Lord Jesus, I love you so much, and I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. What an incredible sermon that you've given us that has lasted all these years that still impacts our heart. And God, today I just come against any kind of spirit of legalism, any kind of controlling spirit of legalism that we would have allowed into our life. God, whether that means we feel guilty for everything that we do or or whether that means that we take no guilt for anything that we do because we can always go back to that letter of the law and manipulate it to the point that we're either not sinning or we're always sinning. And God, today we want freedom. We want freedom from sin. We want freedom from legalism. What we want is a relationship with you. We don't want a set of rules and rituals. We want a relationship. We want to understand the heart behind it. Because we know your word says that if we love you, that we'll obey your commandments. It'll be easy for us to do. And so God, today, I just ask that you would speak to our hearts, that you would set us free today. This morning, as we're praying, Pastor Jonathan's going to sing a song. If you need prayer, if you say, Gabriel, I need prayer for what you're talking about today. There's some areas in my life where I feel trapped in some legalism. I'm stuck in some guilt that I should not be carrying. Maybe there's some sin or some issue in your life and you're saying, I've been excusing it for a long time, but it's time for me to make a change. Maybe you got something else going on. Maybe you need healing in your body or you got a family issue or a financial issue you need someone to pray with you about. We want to open up this altar area for you to pray this morning. So as he sings, I'm going to release everybody to be dismissed. But if you need prayer, I want you to slip out of your seat, be bold and courageous and let us pray with you this morning before you leave.